In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord is taking the Old Testament commands and he is applying them and he's showing their true intention all along. There's actually six different commands that he'll apply here in this next section and we're going to take them two at a time. Uh, But the two that we're dealing with today are very mature content. And so as I mentioned at the front end of the service, uh, we do have an activity table behind the fireplace over there. So if young kids are in here and you want to send them back now, you can do that. Uh, My wife is back there. My kids are back there. There's some uh, activities for them there. And uh, again, the, the content is mature. And I hope that you will have conversations about these things at home. Uh, but I don't want to make that decision for you, so I definitely want to give you the opportunity to, to not be surprised or put off by this. So let's go ahead and read uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21, and then we'll pray, and we will get to work. Let's do this. Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray. Lord, as we have opened your word together and have read it, Lord, we're asking that by your spirit, through that word, you would speak. And we pray, Lord, that you would shape us into a community of faith who not only outwardly observes your law, but also inwardly we're transformed by the power of the good news of the gospel. Change our hearts and our motivations to reflect the true righteousness that you have come to bring. We pray this all in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So here, in this section, Jesus is taking the Old Testament, which last week, if you recall, he said, this is still eternally relevant. And he says, but what I want from followers of me is that they would have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And here he begins to show what that looks like exactly. So he gifts us with a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It's his righteousness, his ability to fulfill the law, but he still expects for us to practically live in alignment to the law itself. And he shows us that the law not only legislates the behaviors of believers, but it also legislates the motivations. It wants us to change down deep. It wants us to be changed at the level of motivation, at the level of the heart. So two different 
commandments are in view here, murder and adultery. Uh, the commandments, they're, they're paired up here. There's similarities between these two and the motivations of the heart. The next two will have some similarities about them. Uh, so you're not really getting two different sermons. There's two topics, but really just one point. So let's get after them one at a time. First, he deals with the commandment not to murder. So look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. It's the law that says human life is sacred. Therefore, there is not this, uh, you cannot take human life in an unauthorized way. You cannot harm human life. Human life is inherently dignified. And we looked at that a few weeks ago, but human life is sacred to God. And so he says, there's this command, you shall not murder. And you've heard it taught over and over and over again. I mean, this is something that is not controversial at all, really in any society. You shall not murder is a widely accepted teaching. And Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That is the original teaching, and on the surface level, it's an easy one to adhere to. We want to stay away from killing each other, right? And most of us can agree that's probably better for the world. But Jesus ratchets it up another notch. He says, here's the real intention behind the commandment. There is an intention that's really is built into the fabric itself. You could preach this message that he gives from Exodus chapter 20. So he's showing, you've heard it taught in this certain way, and a lot of us are, can, can easily say, yes, we're doing that. But he says, there is a deeper reality here in the law. God wants us not only to abstain from killing each other, but to abstain from having murderous intentions in our hearts. So let's look at it in verse 22. He says, but I tell you. Jesus is saying, you've heard the teachers of old say it like this, but I'm showing you here's what it's really about. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. We rightly condemn those who are murderous, but he says anyone who has that angry intention in their heart and they're looking at a brother or sister in that way with that contempt, he says that too is subject to judgment. So to have that inclination in the heart of hostility toward another human being, he says that is inappropriate. And anger, obviously in the Bible, it can be a righteous anger. The Lord himself, he fashioned a whip. He took cords. He maybe braided them together. He goes into the temple. He sees the inappropriate things going on there. He begins to flip tables over in his anger, but he doesn't sin. The Bible, in fact, says in your anger, do not sin. It's possible to have a righteous anger. That's not what's in view here. What's in view here is a contemptuous anger, an anger toward another human being that actually manifests in this, I do not like them. I do not I do not appreciate them. In fact, I despise them. And one of the ways that you can tell whether or not it's contemptuous is, do you call them names in your heart? Look at how the verse goes on in 22. It says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. It's name calling. Now, Raka in the first century, it's a, it's a term that would mean something like empty-headed or air-headed. So it's a, it's a term, and you know, you go, I don't say raka. I mean, none of us would, I've, I've not heard that. I've done student ministry for a number of years. I've never heard that term ever used. But there are other terms that we use. And we look at people and we have, we have these choice words that we say, 
I don't like them, I hate them, and even if we don't verbalize it, we say it in our hearts. Frankly, this, this is political discourse right now, to look at somebody else and, and to go, what, what they're about, what they're saying, what they're promoting, I hate that. And we speak in a contemptuous, name-calling way. And Jesus is saying here, we know that that people who kill each other are subject to judgment, but I want you to understand this too. Those who have murderous intentions in their heart, those who harbor bitterness and and resentment and contempt for other human beings, that too is subject to, to the judgment of God. That he's looking at the inward heart and he's able to say, when you feel that way toward other people, that is beneath Christianity. When, when you have that hatred in your heart toward other people, that is inappropriate. So today we need to ask ourselves, what is going on on the interior? What do we actually feel about other people? Because Jesus doesn't just want a bunch of people who can observe the moral law externally. That, a lot of churches, a lot of churches are filled with, with good people who don't kill each other. But Jesus wants more than that. He wants us to have a heart that is pure. He wants us to not be able to look at other people and go, I hate them so much, they are empty-headed, they are whatever choice word you want to fill in there, but, but he doesn't want us to do that. He says, that too is subject to judgment. He tells us the, the outcome here. He says, this is what will happen if you behave in this way. You will stand accountable before God. You too will be subject to judgment. Then he makes application, and he gives us two different categories to think through how to apply this idea. First is with a brother or sister, a family member in the, in the body of Christ, in the family of Christ, a brother or sister. He says, look, within the community of faith itself, we better be practicing this stuff. But then at the end, the second thing that he does is he's, he applies it to an adversary, to an enemy. And so this is not something that we can narrowly restrict and go, yeah, with us, we can care for each other. But outsiders, no, 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 we can be really mean to them. So here we go, brother or sister in verses 23 and 24. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then Come and offer your gift. This is, this is incredible. He's saying, if you happen to find yourself at a, a religious service, know of anyone who's doing that presently? If you happen to find yourself at a religious service and you realize there is something off in your relationship between a brother or sister, here's the matter of first priority. You stop everything and you go and be reconciled. You drop everything else. This is such a high priority to the Lord that he says, if you find yourself offering a gift at the altar, just leave it there. Go, first you go and be reconciled. Once that matter is tended to, then you can come and worship. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. And that's what I was mentioning a moment ago. A lot of churches have incredibly beautiful worship services. Songs that are well-performed, musicians that are, you know, well-studied and well-practiced and lights and sound and production and all of that. And we can crescendos and we're moved by it. But Jesus says, what I care deeply about is not just that there would be a beauty and a harmony in the music and the melodies, but that there would be a beauty and a harmony in the relationships within that community. 
So if you find yourself worshiping and you are at odds with somebody, you stop everything and you deal with that matter first. Now, this is even more surprising because in the first century, when, when they would hear this, they weren't thinking, you know what, I drove to the tree farm, you know, I drove like 10 minutes, I commuted to something, and I'm, I'm here and I want to worship, and all right, core, now I need to, you know, make matters right in my relationships. No, for them, when they would hear this language, they're thinking that trip that they would take from Galilee to Jerusalem. If they were going to go to the altar and make a sacrifice there, this was something that was, was a well-planned trip that would take a lot of time and energy and sacrifices to perform. And Jesus is saying, if you find yourself in that scenario, I don't care if you've spent all year preparing for this moment, you stop everything and you go to be reconciled. Once that reconciliation happens, then come and offer your gift. So there's a priority here. Grant Osborne puts it like this. Reconciliation in the kingdom community is so important that it has priority over worship. That's how significant the relationships are within the community of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation is so important that it has priority even over worship. So we need to be willing to say, do I have, do I have that resentment in me? Am I angry toward other people? Is there a hostility toward other people? Is there a heart motivation toward other people that calls them by names? And if that is the case, if there's something between a brother and sister in Christ, then I need to stop everything so that I can deal with that right now. But he goes on to, to apply it as well to an adversary. In verse 25, he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. He's saying, look, if there's an enemy of yours, somebody who's an adversary of yours, if you find yourself in conflict with somebody else, even somebody you disagree with, you don't just walk away and go, it is what it is. Like, I, I just don't know how to reconcile these, this thing. He says, no, it's your responsibility to settle matters quickly, to do everything that you can on your end to try to make matters right. Because if you leave that conflict untended to, it will result in your own harm. You could be handed over. You could be punished. You could experience loss and disappointment. So he's saying on our end, we have to take responsibility for what we can. And we have to go to those who we might consider our adversary and try to settle those matters quickly, try to resolve that conflict to the best of our ability. And this is costly stuff. To reconcile with people who are our adversaries, it's going to cost us dearly. We're going to have to offer forgiveness. And forgiveness means that we're absolving, we're, we're, we're absorbing the cost of forgiveness. Remember, so, so Tim Keller puts it like this. When you forgive somebody, what you're doing is you're paying for it. The offense has already happened. If you don't forgive them, you're saying, I'm going to exact what's due to me. You're going to pay me back. I'm, I'm going to make you pay for the things that you've done wrong to me. When you forgive somebody, you're saying you're free from that, but that offense doesn't vanish. It means that you absorb the cost of it. So, so when we have to settle matters quickly with our adversaries, we're saying we are taking the Christian road of forgiving people and, and recognizing that Jesus is asking us to do that. Settle matters quickly. So we need to be a people who examine our own hearts and recognize that even anger in the heart, Jesus is saying, is sin. 
the name-calling, the hostility, the contempt, all of that is inappropriate for followers of his. And he's saying that is subject to judgment. The Apostle Paul, he makes this a principle and he makes it very plain in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He puts it like this. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, obviously that's a lot of qualifying, but it's saying on your end, you're doing everything that you can. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Murder is wrong, but so is anger. So be people who examine your heart and recognize that Jesus is legislating the motivations and the inclinations of the human heart. Secondly, he talks about adultery. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the commandment of God himself, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what that term is getting at, it's recognizing that marriage is sacred. It is an institution that God himself designed. It, significantly, it comes on the first few pages of the Bible, and again on the last few pages of the Bible. The Bible starts and ends with marriage ceremonies in gardens. That's how, that's how important marriage is. It's a beautiful institution that God himself invented and sanctioned, and it is sacred, and human sexuality is a gift of God that is meant to be enjoyed in the marriage union. And so there's a command that you shall not commit adultery. You shall not do anything sexually outside of that sacred marriage that would do harm to the marriage itself. So he says, you've heard this teaching, you shall not commit adultery. Now I wonder if we have heard this teaching, right? In our culture, so he would say it to the audience and they'd not be nodding their heads. Yeah, we, we hear you on this one. We've heard this one before. We should not do that. We recognize that. That's a cultural thing that we all agree with. And then he goes on to apply the deeper meaning. But I was thinking this week, I wonder if our culture, we kind of scratch our heads at this one because we live in such a hyper sexualized culture with a different narrative than that of the Ten Commandments. And so our cultural narrative is, you do whatever makes you happy. You do whatever makes you happy. That is the greatest good that can happen in the world. You do you. Make yourself happy. You know what the greatest sin would be then? Anything that would prevent you from doing what makes you happy. But Jesus says, here's the consistent teaching of Scripture. Here's the con consistent reality of what God has made into the fabric of his creation. Marriage is sacred. Sexuality is beautiful. But those things are meant to be handled together. And he says, so do not commit adultery. But he, then he goes on to say, but there's more to it than that. He says, verse 28, but I tell you, so you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Pretty standard teaching. But here's what I tell you. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. He says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. What he's doing is he's taking that commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He's taking the, the further commandment later on, do not even covet your wife. And he's saying, look, the sexual sin of adultery is obviously inappropriate, but there's a precursor to it. There's stuff that happens before the act itself would ever happen. He says it happens in the heart. When you look at another human being and you sexualize them and you lust after them, he says, when you've done that, you have already committed adultery in your heart. 
So Jesus, again, is raising the level of application, and he's saying a lot of times you can kind of manage the outward stuff and maybe not fall into that temptation or that sin, but he's saying, but the law itself goes much deeper already. It's, it's, all, it's built into the fabric of the law. It's not just that you shouldn't commit adultery. It's that you shouldn't even have those adulterous impulses within you that you're acting on in your heart. So um, as we think about this one, he's telling us the, the importance of not looking at other people and sexualizing them and lusting after them. And, um, and he's saying that this is what this is what true righteousness looks like. It's taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. It's being careful that we're not looking at things that are inappropriate and then allowing ourselves to dwell there and think about it and turn it over and over in our heads. He gives an application here, and it's very drastic, and it gives us an understanding of the severity of sin. Look at verses 29 and following. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your body, for your whole body to go into hell. Here's what he's saying. Take drastic measures here take incredibly drastic measures here. Now, he is speaking, in my, in my understanding, he's speaking figuratively. Now, there have been times in church history where people have taken this literally. They've said, look, there are things that are causing me to sin. I'm going to chop off, I'm, I'm listening to the Lord, I'm going to chop off my hand, or I'm going to gouge out my eye, or Origen actually voluntarily had himself castrated and became a eunuch. And there are some people who say, look, this is such a problem for me that I'm going to literally follow the Lord. But Jesus... I think the church rightly condemned that and said, That's, you, you kind of missed the point here. What Jesus is saying is take drastic measures. Do what is necessary to prevent this kind of sexual sin. Cut off your hand if need be, figuratively. Do, do something that would maim your life so that you're not enticed to sin in this direction. Now, as I was thinking about it, probably the, the easiest way for us to get on board with the intention of the application is to think about people who are who are addicted to different things, people who are, who are addicts who are seeking help, who are in recovery programs. I've got a, a few different friends that are in recovery programs, and as I've talked to them and talked about the things that they, that they have to do, these sorts of things become plain to me. So an addict who uh, struggles with alcoholism, they maim their life, meaning they recognize that being around situations where they would be tempted to drink is not an option for them. If, if they want to be successful in their recovery, they cut things out of their lives. They don't keep alcohol around. They don't visit social situations where people are drinking uh, socially. They, they, they adjust their lives. They change their lives in order to apply this reality that they want to stay, they want to stay um, healthy and, and, uh, and not fall into that addictive behavior again. They do things like that. Or gambling. I've got a friend who has struggled with, with um, sports gambling and had to, realized, had the humility to ask for help and had to make some very significant changes to the way that they were doing life. They realized, I probably shouldn't have unlimited internet access on my phone, on such a private device. I shouldn't have that because there's no accountability there. 
So instead of having a smartphone, I'll just go back to the old flip phone. But I'm going to maim my life. I know a lot of, almost everyone has a smartphone nowadays, but, I, but I'm, going to, I'm going to do something different because I don't, I don't want to be tempted in that direction and fall into that behavior again. They, had to, they, they opened up their financial online banking to people and they said, we need, I need you to be checking on this regularly. If there, if there are withdrawals from an ATM, that needs to be answered for. And, and so you see what, what an addict is willing to do is they are willing to make significant adjustments to, the, to their life because they don't want to fall back into those behaviors. Now, that's the kind of thing that Jesus is saying here. If you are tempted to look on other people and to lust, if you're tempted to look lustfully at other people, what kind of drastic measures ought you take? Maybe you shouldn't have a smartphone. Maybe you shouldn't have a laptop where people aren't, will, aren't able to see what's going on there. Maybe you need some accountability, accountability structures on your, on your devices and in your life even. Maybe you need a, you know, a desktop computer in a very public place. But what I'm saying here is pornography, pornography is an issue. I didn't even bother looking it up. I, I would venture to guess the statistics are probably very alarming both inside and outside of the church. That, that internet pornography is an issue. And Jesus is saying, yeah, the sexual sin of adultery, that's wrong, but there's other stuff that goes on even before that. Looking at pornography, lusting after others, that too is something that is under the judgment and scrutiny of God himself. And so what are we going to do to try to ensure that we are people who are changed thoroughly, through and through? And, and maybe we do have to take drastic measures. But here's what, here's what Jesus is saying then, as he's preaching this sermon and he's applying these two different commandments. Jesus is showing us the true intention of the law. He's showing us the superior righteousness of his followers. Not just that they would outwardly obey the commandments. We don't want to be a church where, where we abstain from doing those very obvious sinful things. We don't kill each other. We're not sleeping around. So we can check those off the list. That's, obviously, that's a part of the intention of the law, but it goes much deeper. I don't want to be the kind of church that's filled with a bunch of angry people who can look at other people and condemn them and call them different names contemptuously. I don't want to be a church that's full of people who aren't committing adultery but are doing all kinds of sexual sin in private. Jesus is saying this is what he wants, a people who are radically changed by the gospel and who are living faithfully to him. So our motivations as well as our actions are under the scrutiny of God. May we be people who both outwardly observe what God commands, but also inwardly are motivated by the commandments of God as well. May we be people who are following God with integrity of heart. He wants us to be a radically changed people. And I wonder if there are some things that we need to do as a result of what Jesus is teaching today. Maybe some relationships need to be tended to today. Reconciliation needs to happen today. Um, you go, well, core, I've got Super Bowl stuff going on and I'm busy and I'll deal with it later. No, no, no. Jesus is saying you drop everything and you deal with it. Maybe some things need to happen in the realm of sexual sin. 
and we need to get honest, and some honest conversations have to happen, and some adjustments have to be made, and some maiming of our lives need to, need to happen, because we recognize the severity of sin here. And we say, today I'm going to have a very frank conversation with a handful of people so that this thing would be out in the open, so that it would be something that can be dealt with appropriately. But Jesus is saying the law of God and the superior righteousness of Jesus Christ, of followers of him, we don't just want to outwardly obey. We want to be inwardly transformed. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to be conformed to your image. Help us, Lord, to be changed at the level of the heart. We want to be your people through and through. Lord, we don't just want to pretend. We don't just want to abstain from the obvious activities that are condemnable. But we also want our hearts to be so radically changed that we, that we recognize even those sinful impulses in us and we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to you and your will. Lord, we want to be radically changed by the good news of the gospel, and we believe that that is possible today. So give us the courage, Lord, to follow your ways and help us to be honest enough, even today, for us to seek and receive the help that we need. So Lord, help us to be a gospel community that glorifies you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.